time to get through chapter 1. We've been making some ground, and I'll just tell you, we couldn't have made the ground that we made if we hadn't taken two years of time in this church to go into detail on this. Now, I want to tell you something. If you're a guest with us this morning, some of the things you're going to hear today are going to be very potentially very unsettling to you. You may think you like me right now, but chances are good. By the time we get out of here this morning, chances are real good that you won't. And I want you to know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna breeze through a passage and breeze that that wait, no I can't say breeze we're gonna go through a passage today. I want you to know we have we have taken in the last several years many 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 weeks to document everything that you're gonna hear today. Understand what we're doing right now is we're going verse by verse through the book of Revelation. We don't have the time to take two years in chapters two and three. So we're, we're, we're making a, a jet tour through this right now. But understand that if you want to get the full meal deal, like at McDonald's, all of that is available for you in the bookstore. All of the weeks of this, all documented. all I mean, every single bit of it, all the way down through the way. And, uh, and you don't even have to buy the tapes. We have a tape lending library that's available to you. I mean, you have to throw some bucks down to just, you know, the... Uh, the people that work in, in that, but you don't even have to buy them. You can borrow them, and when you're done with the tapes, you can turn them back in. So we're not going to try to make money off of you. So this is not a paid advertisement for the bookstore. We're, we're saying, hey, borrow the tapes if this is unsettling to you. But for God's sake, check it out and see if these things be, be so. But you remember when we were kids, uh, I think one of the first riddles that I ever learned, my, my dad was a, a big riddler, you know, Always had a joke for everything. And one of the first riddles that I ever heard is, what's black and white and red all over? Okay? How many of you, how many of you remember this little deal? Okay. And what's the answer? Newspaper. Okay? And so you, you get that thing down and, you know, you come into first grade and you think, oh, I know all the riddles there are. And some little kid with a snotty nose comes up to you and he says, hey, what's black and white and red all over? And you say, oh, that's easy, man. It's a newspaper. He says, no. You know the answer? Zebra with a sunburn, right? <laughs> you know, and you want to smack the kid like you want to smack me right now. But there's a not-so-funny answer to that question historically. And that is that historically the rule has been if you take a black and white approach to this book, you know what's going to happen to you? You will become the one who is read all over. That is, there is a price to take that stand. And that price is our own blood. And that's what we're going to see is the theme of this fifth of the seventh letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Now, this morning we're going to be picking up in Revelation chapter 3, covering verses 1 through 6, the letter to the church in Sardis. But one of the things, and this is where we'll pick up on your study sheet this morning, one of the things that we've seen thus far in our study of the book of Revelation, we covered this quite a bit in the early sections of the study when we were back in chapter 1, but one of the things that we tried to nail down right from the get-go is the fact that the return of Jesus Christ to this planet is something that is very near. And we realize that the Bible says in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36 that no man knows the day, no man knows the hour of his return, and so obviously we believe that. But 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it tells us that there is something that we can know perfectly about the return of Christ, and that is we can know perfectly the times and seasons. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, back in the book of Malachi chapter 4, in verse 2, what it tells us is it tells us that the return of Jesus Christ to this planet is like the rising of the sun. In fact, that passage even calls Jesus Christ the sun, capital S-U-N, the sun of righteousness. And for those of you who know that that 6 o'clock comes more than once a day, you know, and you can tell us, that when the sun is about to crest the horizon, you're not just sitting in total darkness, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, bam! Here it is, this big ball of fire in the sky, and just immediately, I mean, here is this, you know, I mean, everything just got light all of a sudden. No, a lot of you guys, you drive to work early in the morning, and, and you're, you're heading your way, and man, the sky around 6 o'clock in the morning, starts shouting out some signs to you that something is about to happen over there on that east horizon, right? I mean, and it's for a long period of time that this thing is, I mean, it's just, I mean, it keeps escalating, letting you know something's about to happen. Now, by the signs that you're seeing, you may not be able to, to give the precise, exact minute that that sun is going to come up, but there's no doubt about the fact. You know, in just a little while that thing is about to take place and you see it is the same exact way with the return of christ we may not be able to know the day or the hour but by the signs that god has laid out in this book concerning the events that will be taking place in the world that precede his coming we can very perfectly know this morning the time and this what season it is we can know when it is about to happen And based on that, I'm telling you, the return of Jesus Christ to this planet is very near. Yeah, all five of us believe in that. The return of Jesus Christ is very near. Okay. Now, based on what the Bible has very clearly revealed to us about the times and the seasons of the return of Christ, one of the things that we know is that within the next decade or so, the world is about to become very religious. Now, I don't care how irreligious the world may be this morning. I don't care how unreligious. I'm not sure what the right word is there. How atheistic, how agnostic the world may be this morning. I'm just telling you, based on what the Scripture says, this world is about to become very religious in the very near future. And believe it or not, like no other time in the history of mankind, there is going to be, and the world is going to experience a religious unity. And the reason there is going to be this unity is there is only going to be one religious system that will actually be recognized on this planet. And that religious system is a system that is present in the world today. And it's not Mohammedism, it's not Buddhism, it's not Hinduism. It's not Shintoism. It's not New Ageism. It is a system that is recognized by virtually every person on this planet as Christianity. But not Christianity as it is defined from this book. What it is, is a system of religion that is known as Roman Catholicism. It is a system that already this morning 
is the religion of almost 20% of the entire world's population. Did you realize that? One One out of every five people on this planet is already a Roman Catholic. But listen, that's nothing. Because it is about to explode in popularity. And the way that the books of First and Second Thessalonians and the book of Revelation lays this out for us is that in the next couple of years, and maybe even within the next couple of minutes, if we're lucky enough, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, those people who are presently living on this planet, who have entered into a personal relationship with God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, what the Bible says is in just a fraction of a second, in the twinkling of an eye, they will be immediately be removed from this planet. And that event, called the rapture of the church, is an event that is going to send this world, folks, into utter chaos. I mean, we don't have the time to really exhaust this thing, but I want you to imagine for just a second when the rapture takes place and millions of people vanish before people's very eyes, can you imagine the fear that is going to grip the souls of men and women as they begin to search for answers for why it is that some of their friends and and some of their family members and some of their their co-workers and why their little babies and why their grandchildren, why they have just totally disappeared. They're looking for answers. They're asking questions like, was it UFOs or... Or is it just the fact as we're approaching this new millennium, uh, this new millennium that as the year 2000 is, is drawing closer, is it that we've entered into a new dimension or some, you know, I'm hearing all this about the new age, but where are these people? Where did they go? Will we ever see them again? Is this something that's going to take place again? And, and you can just begin to understand the fear that is going to come. These are the kind of questions that people are going to be dealing with. Not to mention... The, the millions and millions of people killed as all of a sudden pilots of planes. Some of those people are Christian. Have you ever thought about that? And they're vanished from the cockpit. And people are going down in planes and, and train engineers and drivers of buses and taxis and, and cars. I mean, these people were there. And in the moment of a twinkling of an eye, they're just, they're just gone and, and they've left th- their passengers to destruction. Many doctors and and nurses and and medical and hospital staff, they're removed. Government officials, many of... (laughs) A couple of them are gone. And and bank officials and and leaders of business and, and finance, along with millions of millions of people in the workforce. And what has happened is buying and selling has become almost impossible. And just at a time when it seems like the world is at its bottom and there is just an absolute desperation and people are looking for some kind of hope, people who are looking for some kind of answers, just at that moment, Satan's counterfeit of the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed on this planet. That one that 1 John chapter 2, verse 22 calls the Antichrist. He's identified in first, or Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 as the man of sin. In that same verse, he's also identified as the son of perdition. Second Thessalonians 2.8 calls him that wicked. And in the book of Revelation, chapters 13, verses 1 through 4, it calls him the beast. And he arrives on this planet, the scripture says in Revelation chapter 6, as an emissary of peace. He has a bow. 
The bow isn't what kills you. It's arrows, isn't it? And he has a bow, but no arrows. Daniel talks about the fact that he comes to this planet and he sets up a peace treaty. And he is going to come to this planet, guys. He's going to come to this planet and he is going to put on such a spectacular display of miraculous power that the Bible says virtually the whole world will follow him. Not only politically, not only governmentally, but religiously. And now listen, the religious system that he will use, it is called a woman in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 3. It is the woman who sits upon the beast. The beast is the Antichrist. The one world religion of the Antichrist is identified as a woman. And it will be the same religious system that goes by the name Christian that Satan has been using to masquerade as the true church of Christ or the universal Christianity, that same system that he's used since 325 A.D., that counterfeit of true Bible Christianity called down through the, the centuries Roman Catholicism. And that's what we've seen that God reveals to us in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 in the seven letters to the seven churches. The fact that there are two lines of churches. There are two lines of people. There's two lines of teaching. There's two lines of Bibles. With each one of those, you've got gods and you've got the devils. And there's no in-between. It's one or the other. There's only two lines. And we've traced through history using Revelation 2 and 3 as our guide, as our road map, as our infallible guide to interpret the events of history. The fact that as soon as Satan understood the revelation of the mystery of the church that was revealed to Paul and then Paul revealed to us in the book of Ephesians and, and how that, that the church of Jesus Christ would be for a period of approximately 2,000 years that institution that Jesus Christ would use to accomplish His purpose on the church. And listen, as soon as Satan understood that mystery that was revealed to Paul, Satan went to work to come up with his own church to counterfeit the church of Jesus Christ. And by doing so, what he is able to accomplish is he's able to fulfill man's desire to be religious with a counterfeit system that is not only a counterfeit system, it goes by the name of Christianity. And so what it can do is it makes man feel so religious about all of the things that he's doing, but while he's being so religious, he is kept from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And the end result is that that counterfeit system damns his soul to hell. God lays out a progression of how the devil pulled it off in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And we've seen how that leaders in Christianity as early as the second century began in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4 to simply just leave the words of this book as they were handed to them in spite of the command of 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13 where it tells us that we are to hold fast the form of sound Words and what those people did is they left their first love. First love being the Word of God. They began to leave the words of the Bible and began to replace them with words out of the, the pagan Greek culture where they used that word Catholic 
And by the third century, the end of Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9, look at it, those deviations had developed into a counterfeit religious system that God calls the synagogue of Satan. By the fourth century, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13, Satan gets a seat in that synagogue. And by the fifth century, the end of Revelation 2 and verse 13, he sits down in that seat and he dwells there. It's a church now. And from that seat, from that chair, if you will, by the time you get to the sixth century, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 24, Satan has flooded the world with his false doctrine to counterfeit the Lord Jesus Christ in his church. The Lord calls it there the depths of Satan. But you'll notice in verse 20 of Revelation 2, look at it. Verse 20 of Revelation 2, our Lord identifies Satan's church or his false religious system just as he does all through the Bible as a woman. And you'll notice also that he identifies her very specifically as that woman. Which woman? That woman Jezebel. And so what we did, just like God is trying to highlight to us that this same system that Satan is using, it's Jezebel, guys. And so, hey, because we believe 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13, that the Spirit of God reveals the truth of the Word of God to us as we compare Scripture with Scripture, what we did, we went back to Judges chapter 17 and 18, 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 18 last week, and we saw that the religious system of Jezebel in the Old Testament was a counterfeit system that Satan used to seduce Israel from following God. And that system of Jezebel was a system that used black-robed priests. Black-robed priests who were called fathers, who used idols as aids in worship in their house of gods. And that system in the Old Testament was called Baalism. That's not reading one thing into the Word of God. You go back to those chapters, you can get the tape from last week, that's exactly what it is spelled out in those chapters. And what God is showing us here through this whole progression in Revelation 2 and 3 is that the false religious system that Satan is using to counterfeit the church in the New Testament, more specifically the church age, is really that same system of Jezebel. And this system Jezebel in the church age, it too uses black-robed priests who are called fathers who use aids as or idols as aids in worship in their house of gods. Only now, we don't call it Baalism. Now it is called Roman Catholicism. And in Revelation 17, it is that same woman, the same woman of Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20, that sits upon the beast as the one world religion of the Antichrist. And so let me tell you what that means. What that means is that in just a few more years, the whole world is going to be Roman Catholic or face martyrdom. Their sheets are run wrong. Okay, I guess the third sheet that you have is the sheet that I'm on right now. Did you guys find that all right? Okay, cool. Not perfect just real friendly. 
Okay, let's don't lose our train of thought, okay? What all of this means, guys, is that in just a few more years, the whole world, the whole world is going to become Roman Catholic or face martyrdom. That'll be the choices. And for some of you young people who may not understand martyrdom, what that means is to die for a cause. In other words, you're either going to become Roman Catholic or you will be killed. And what we find biblically is that those who don't become Roman Catholic will, for the most part, be Jews. Jews whose eyes are open to the reality that when Jesus Christ came, He came as the anointed Messiah of God, and their eyes are going to open to the fact that their forefathers crucified their Lord, their Messiah, almost 20 centuries ago, and many of them will be martyred for their stand against the one world religion of the Antichrist. But now listen, some very religious lines are about to be drawn. In fact, they're, they're already pretty much in place. It's just the rapture of the church is going to force people to get on one side or the other. And I listen, I know what some of you are thinking right now. Some of you are here this morning. You've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You're hearing me go through all of this, and you know what? You know what's already happening. God is beginning to speak to your heart. And what you're thinking right now, a lot of you, not all of you, but what some of you are thinking right now is, well, if that's the truth, then I'll just wait till then. And then I'll get on the right side. I've got news for you. You won't. You won't. You say, well, how do you know that? I'll tell you that because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, what it talks about there is the deceitfulness of sin or the deceivableness of sin. Now listen, if knowing what you know now and certainly what you're going to know by the time we get to the end of this message this morning, if you can allow sin to deceive you into rejecting the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life today, I promise you, you won't stand a chance then. Listen, because the same sin that deceives you into rejecting Christ now will be the same sin that deceives you into receiving the Antichrist then. You say, well, what are you trying to do, man? You're trying to scare me? You know what? If that's what it takes, I'll just tell you, yes. And and like I told you at the beginning, you may not leave here today thinking I'm the most friendly guy on on the planet. I'm Really, uh, aside from, from teaching... What is truth? I can be a, a right friendly guy at times. But I'll tell you, I'd gladly risk you walking out those doors saying this morning, I'll never go back to that place if I thought that from you hearing what I'm telling you this morning, there might be just some minute possibility that you might be jolted out of the deception of Satan and your own sin. Listen. Though many of you don't believe this, you may not realize this, but listen, based on what this book says about how a person comes to Christ, the decision that some of you people are going to make in this room today will be the decision that will carry you into eternity. I mean, boy, when you really stop to get a hold of that thing, some of you, the decision you make is going to bring you into eternal life. The decision some of you make this morning is the decision that is going to bring you into eternal damnation 
and torment. And you may not like facing the truth of that. You may have come for a picnic this morning. You may not like facing the truth of that. But listen, at least by facing it now, you can do something about it. Do you see that? You see, when you begin to understand this thing, then what you can do is you can humble yourself before God today and present yourself to Him with with all of your sin, with all of your inability and incapability of attaining His righteousness on your own, and with nothing but your sinfulness. You can come to the Lord Jesus Christ today and you can call upon His name. And what will take place, the Bible says, is the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you from all sin, from all guilt, You can receive Him today as your only Savior and Lord. And listen, in that one miraculous instant, you will be born into His family. You will be His child forever. And you can face the last days with confidence and with great anticipation of His return for you. That can happen for some of you today. You say, no, if I miss the rapture, I'll just just call upon the Lord then. No. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that your decision to reject Christ now, that because of that decision, you will be sent strong delusion after the rapture of the church. And you know where the strong delusion is coming from? It comes from God Himself. See, that's how seriously He takes His gospel when it's presented to you. You reject that thing now. It's good news this morning, y'all. And the arms of Jesus are open to you. But listen, let me tell you, once the rapture of the church takes place and you know the gospel, you will be sent strong delusion. And what it says is you will believe the lie of the Antichrist. You will receive his mark. And by doing so, you will seal your own eternal destiny. And what's wild is you can go over to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 21. Verse 21. And what you can do is you can read about the, about the very people who are alive on this planet right now. Maybe even some of you that are in this room. And what it says in Revelation 16, 21 is that hailstones are falling out of the sky that are a hundred pound weight. And people are, you know, dodging these things that are coming out of the heaven and they have something to say to God. But it's not a plea for mercy. You know what's wild? Some of the people in this room, some of the people on this planet right now, some of our friends and loved ones will be blaspheming the name of God at that very time when they're experiencing His judgment on them. Wow. And maybe there's some of you that are here this morning and maybe you would like to call upon His name to save you. And I want you to know, at the conclusion of this message today, that's, that's where all this is pointing to you if you don't know Christ At the conclusion of this message this morning, I'm going to give you the opportunity to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And I'm telling you that now, so that as we go through this this morning, you can determine what it is that you will do with Christ and what it is that you will do with your sin this morning. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, listen, that's why all of this stuff that we're looking at in Revelation 2 and 3 is so important. Because knowing this stuff can open your eyes to the battle that rages for your soul in these last days and open your eyes to the the only truth that can save you from destruction and, and eternal torment and damnation. And if you're here this morning, as most of you are, and you're already saved, listen, this is so important for us to make sure that we've got this stuff under our belt and we know this 
so that we can carry out the very simple command of what we have been called to do as the church of Jesus Christ in these last days. And what we've been called to do, folks, is stand. To stand. It's not happening in many places. But what the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 5 is we are to stand, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 1 Corinthians 16.13 says to stand fast in the faith. Ephesians 6.11 says to stand against the wiles of the devil. Ephesians 6.13, that we are to withstand in the evil day. Philippians 1.27, to stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12, to stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And so last week as we looked to the letter of the, uh, to the Thyatira church period, what we did last week is we came through the first half of the devil's millennium, what is more commonly referred to historically as the dark ages. We came through the years 500 to 1,000 represented in that letter to the church to Thyatira. And now this morning, we come to the letter commissioned to the church in Sardis. Chapter 3 and verse 1 says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write. And the Sardis church period is a period of time from around 1000 A.D., the beginning of the Crusades, to around 1500 and the beginning of the Reformation. And as we've worked our way through the first four church periods, what we've noted is that the names of each of these churches is significant. And that the meaning of the name of the church is really representative of the main characteristic of the church in that time period from God's perspective. And interestingly enough, Sardis, the name that God gives to represent that period of church history when the persecution and bloodshed upon Bible believers was greater than at any other time, you know what it means? It means red ones. That's why I was telling you that another way to answer what is black and white and red all over, another answer is our Bible-believing brothers and sisters in the Sardis church period. Next time somebody asks you what's black and white and red all over, give them that one. That's what he says. God looked into that period of time from 1,000 to 1,500. Listen. And the one-world capsulization of that 500-year period from his perspective was Sardis. He saw his people, those had been covered with his own blood spiritually. He looked into that time period and he saw them covered with their own blood physically for his name's sake. Another great synopsis that God gives of what was going on in this period is found over in Revelation 17 and verse 6. Turn over there after you've jotted that on your sheet. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 6. And look at what he says here in this verse. He says in verse 6, chapter 17, And I saw the woman. I saw the woman. Who's the woman, y'all? It's Jezebel. Who's the woman? Jezebel. Roman Catholic Church, and I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. You see, that's why Jesus looked into that Sardis church period and saw red ones. It's because 
the woman that we just talked about made herself intoxicated by shedding the blood of God's true children. She was having a grand and glorious time at the expense of people who believed nothing less and nothing more than what the people in this room believed. That's what Sardis is all about. The Roman Catholic Church in the Dark Ages making herself drunk on the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And we'll talk about that more in just a little while. But I want you to see the things that our Lord writes in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, concerning the period of history referred to as the Sardis church period. Now, we understand, go back to Revelation 3 now, we understand that there is definitely a historical application. We've talked about these things before. These were literal churches. There was a literal church in Sardis between 90 and 95 A.D. The things that our Lord is writing applied very specifically to those events that were taking place historically. But when you put these into the context of the whole of the book of Revelation, rightly dividing it the way that God has given you those division lines in that book, what you find out is these letters are representative of seven periods of church history, and that's what we're looking at. Now, with each of these letters, our Lord introduces each letter by giving some aspect of His character. Some aspect of His character that's going to be pertinent to the events that will be taking place during that time period. I want you to watch how He does it in this letter in verse 1. And under the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith He that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Okay, now let's start with the easy one first. These things saith He that hath the seven stars. There, there's nothing to left to speculation about what the seven stars are. He's already clearly laid that out for us in chapter 1. Look back there if you would. You'll notice in verse 13 of chapter 1, John is in the process of <clears throat> describing what he was caught up in heaven to behold as far as the Lord's glory is concerned. He's seen the risen and glorified Christ for the very first time. And he talks about the garments that he was wearing in verse 13. His head and his hairs and his eyes in verse 14, verse 15, his feet and his voice. And then verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars. Hmm, wonder what those are. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand. Here's what they are. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And we've covered who or, or what these angels actually are in chapter 1. The fact that they are the representation of the church in the presence of God in the third heaven. Now, we don't have time to go into the explanation of all of that again, but what you'll find out in the book of Daniel is that even nations on this earth have a representation, an angelic representation in the heavens. Matthew 18 talks about children, their angelic representation in the heavens. There's other places. What you find is that the church, there's an angelic representation of that church in the third heaven. But look at the other dimension of his character in verse 1. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. Now, if you've been here since the beginning of this study, you'll remember that we also covered this in verse 1. In fact, why don't you go back to or, or chapter 1. Uh, go back there again. Chapter 1 and verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And now watch this. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Okay, and so now we're going to start calculating some things here. So follow the progression. We know 
that not only are there seven spirits of God, what this verse tells us is where they're located. They are before his throne. And look over in chapter 4 and verse 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, here it is now, which are the seven spirits of God. Okay, so catch it. There are seven spirits of God, and they are before the throne of God, and they take the appearance of seven lamps of fire that burn before the throne. And look at chapter 5 and verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, and here it comes again, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So put it together. There are seven spirits of God. They are the lamps of fire that burn before His throne, but not only that, they are His eyes. Hmm, sounds like we've heard something about that before. Eyes as flames of fire. Chapter 1, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 18. Chapter 19, verse 12. And he goes on in verse 6 of chapter 5 to say that the seven spirits of God, which are the seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, and the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, that they are sent forth into all the earth. Listen, Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10 adds that those seven eyes run to and fro through the whole earth. And Second Chronicles sixteen nineteen tells you why those eyes are running to and fro throughout the whole earth. And what it is that they're looking for, it says that they're running to and fro so God can show Himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward Him. What He's saying here is that during the Sardis church period, those eyes that are the seven spirits of God, those eyes go out on a search into the Sardis church period. And listen, the very first thing that the eyes of God are confronted with is the religious counterfeit. Because understand, during this period of time, that counterfeit, the Roman Catholic Church, absolutely dominated the world. And this is the condemnation. At the last part of verse 1, he says... I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. You know what he's saying? Oh, oh yeah. You go by my name. But you don't have my life. You see that? It calls itself the universal Christianity. You go by my name, but you're dead. You're a dead system. Oh, I hear you quoting... The Apostles' Creed, and I know you believe in the virgin birth and the death of Christ on the cross and the resurrection, but you're dead. All you give people is a religious system. You don't give them me. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 12 says, He that hath the Son hath life. But nobody comes to me in your system. You're dead. You're a system of death. And in Sardis, it was almost all death. In verses 2 and 3, what wasn't dead was about to die. And this is the correction. I think it's Roman numeral 4 on your outline. Look at verse 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. 
Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not, shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. And now I want you to remember, he's writing this to the counterfeit church. Those eyes have looked in, and the first thing that they behold is that satanic, religious counterfeit, that woman, that woman Jezebel. And you see, now, now listen to this, this is, this is wild. She has a lot of right doctrines. That's why you're looking at verses 2 and 3, and it just looks like, man, this doesn't seem like this is really all that bad. She's got a lot of the right doctrines. And you see, that's why so many people get seduced into her bed. And, and that's not my terminology. If that goes against your grain, that's exactly what Jesus calls it in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 22. You see, she, she's able to, to seduce people into this spiritual fornication of, of accepting her system of religion because it sounds so right. What you'll find is that they use a lot of the same exact terminology that we use. And you can talk about a lot of things and they believe a lot of the same things. Let me take you over to Revelation 17 again for just a second. You see, this is what was blowing John away as he was receiving the revelation. Now, we looked at verse 6 just a couple of minutes ago where John says, <coughs> John says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And now watch this. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. The way that we would say it today if we were writing is, is I, when I saw her, it just absolutely blew me away. And you know what it was that was blowing him away, folks? Now, now keep in mind, when John is receiving this revelation, he is a guy that is living in 90 to 95 A.D. He's a guy who knows all about pagan Rome. And he knows all about how pagan Rome has killed the saints. I mean, he's no doubt been a witness to thousands of martyrs of Jesus Christ by this time. All of the other disciples, the apostles, had all gone to a martyr's death. No doubt he has seen thousands of people martyred in the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, when he receives the revelation, he is on the Isle of Patmos, having been placed there by pagan Rome, the Scripture says, because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1 and verse 9. The thing that is blowing him away here is he sees Rome in a mystery form. Look at verse 5. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. Now remember, John has been caught up into a future period of time. What we saw in chapter 1 is he was caught up to the day of the Lord and he's seen Rome. But now he's seeing Rome, not as pagan Rome. He's seen Rome as that woman who professes to be the true church. He's seen her as the woman who professes to believe every fundamental doctrine of the Word of God. She believes the virgin birth. She believes the sinless life. She believes the atoning death. She believes the resurrection. She believes the second coming of Christ, and yet she gets off or she's drunk on murdering born-again Bible-believing people. Can you understand how that's blowing John away? And yet she calls herself the Holy Mother Church, and yet she butchers anybody who genuinely believes those things. See, that's what's blowing John away. Now go back to chapter 3. 
See, that's why the Lord says the things that He says to her back in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3. She believes all the right doctrines, but she's dead. And what she needed was to repent, to get saved. And we hit on this last week. The answer to the Roman Catholic Church in the Dark Ages, and its answer today in 1997, the answer was not then, nor is it now, to reform. It was to repent. To come to true repentance. You see, true repentance is what brings life. And until you come to a place of repentance, there's no salvation. And what that system has is just a bunch of religiousness. You see, you know what? Man has this this built-in longing to be religious. He loves religious stuff. He likes candles. He likes holy water. He likes magical things taking place before his eyes and bells ringing. And There's just something that is mystical about it that man loves. You see, it's very seducing. And it's very religious. And it'll damn your soul to hell. But not only do the seven spirits of God, which are His eyes, look into that Sardis period and see the counterfeit system, and not only does it address it by way of condemnation and correction, but those eyes that are the eyes of the Spirit of God, now listen, do you remember what Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10 says that they were actually searching for? Do you remember it? They're searching for those whose hearts had been made perfect by the blood of of Jesus Christ. And do you remember why? To show Himself strong on their behalf. And here was the absolute darkest period of history, folks. In all of human history, there was never a darker time than the years 1000 to 1500. I mean, during that period of time, folks, it is so dark spiritually that you can't see your hand in front of your face and... Man, I wish I could get some of you to go to bed early on Saturday night so you don't sleep through this. I don't, I, I'm telling you, I can't figure it, man. I, I mean, it's so dark spiritually that some of, some of you can't see your hand in front of your face because your eyelids are covering it. But remember, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5 says that those, those eyes of the Lord burned as lamps of fire. And they come into that darkest period of church history, buddy. And let me tell you, they are piercing that darkness like a beacon. And as dark as the world was, listen, there was no amount of darkness on earth that could keep the Lord from seeing His own in that time period. And with seven of them, the number of completion and perfection in the Bible, there was no distance that those eyes would not travel over the whole earth in order to find Him. And you know what the result of the search was? This is the commendation of the letter, verse 4. I love this. Thou hast... A few names, even in Sardis. Even in the darkest period of history, the Lord says there were still a few which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And yeah, compared to the population of the whole earth, there would have been very few. Historians tell us that during the 12th century, that the number would have been somewhere around four million. And in light of the the population of the earth, yeah, I'll give you, it was a few. But there's something that you need to know. And you never lose sight of this. No, listen, 
no matter how dark the times have been in the Old Testament, no matter how apostate the nation of Israel may have become, no matter how sinful, and in the church age, no matter how dark it got, no, no matter how powerful the Roman Catholic Church became, God has always, listen, God has always had His faithful few who would not bow the knee to Baal. That faithful few who wouldn't defile their garments. Well, they may be greatly overshadowed. They may be labeled as heretics as you read down through the church historians through the centuries. But let me tell you, they're there. They're there. You say, well, how do you know that? Because Jesus Himself said they were in verse 4. That's how. Listen, those were people. Get this down. This is so important. Those were people who were never a part of the Roman Catholic Church. People who stood for the truth of the Word of God and against the Roman Catholic Church long before the Reformation. People who weren't trying to reform the Catholic Church because they were never in it. They were never a part of it. The Roman Catholic Church calls herself the Mother Church and, and boasts herself that all the Christian denominations come out of her. Well, she's a mother, all right. Revelation 17.5 tells you that she's the mother of harlots. Let me tell you something. She ain't my mama. And if you believe what this church believes, you know what? She ain't your mama either. You, you say, well, you know, people come along. What, are you a Protestant or are you a Catholic? You know what? I ain't either one. And I am not going to tell anybody that I'm a Protestant. People ask me that question. I say, I'm neither one. Well, well what are you then? Are you, are you Jewish? No. You Muslim? No. But what are you then? Well, the few, if you will, the few who believe what I believe, let's forget what I believe, the few who believe what the Bible teaches in the Ephesus church period, they were called Montanists. In the Smyrna period, they were called Novatians. In the Pergamus period, they were called Donatists. In the Thyatira period, they were called Paulicians. And by the Smyrna period, that few is beginning to be like ants all over Europe with a pile over here and there's a pile of them over here. And, and they're called by different names in different parts of, of Europe. They're called the Cathari, the, which means the pure. They're called the Bogomiles, the Albigenses, the Waldenses, the Henricians, the Bulgarians, the Petrobutians, the Arnolds, or Arnoldists, the Lollards, the Hussites, and finally they're called the Anabaptist. Anna, A-N-A, Anabaptist. You know what that means? Against the baptism of the state church. That's what all of these groups were all about. And that's why they finally, there were so many of them, they had to call them by the doctrine that they possessed. They were against the baptism of the state church and though at times because of the scarcity of bibles i mean i, I read one estimate that there was like one bible for every twenty thousand bible believing people on the planet at that time and listen because of that fact and because of the fact that they spent a great portion of their time being hunted like animals by the roman catholic church though sometimes there may have been some doctrine that they weren't quite straight on listen there were at least five things every one of those groups that we just listed that few that Jesus was, was just talking about, there are five things that those groups of people all had in common and they would not compromise for anything. And let me tell you something. 
Those five things are the same exact things that this church has held fast since the year 1858, what is soon to be 140 years. And here's what they were. Number one, they all professed to believe that the Bible alone was the final authority in every matter. I wonder, is there anybody here that believes that? If you do, say amen. 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 In or out of the church and trying to put tradition or anything else or anybody else on equal par with scriptures was to every single one of these groups. Every single one of them. You know what they called it? They called it blasphemy. What do you call it? Amen. Number two, they all believed that baptism was for believers in Jesus Christ only and was to be done by immersion. Anybody here believe that? In other words, they would never baptize any baby or anybody else that had not already expressed saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. None of these groups of Bible believers ever believed that baptism could save you. And after you were saved, let me tell you, not one of them would ever think of sprinkling you because they knew that it was the invention of the Roman Catholic Church. And so if you had had water sprinkled on you and you you said you professed true saving faith, you know what they did? They dunked you again. You know what we do around here when people have water thrown on them they say they got saved? We dunk them again. That's our heritage, buddy. Number three. They all believed in the separation of church and state. And what that means is they didn't think that the state or the government had any business whatsoever dictating to a local church anything that it was supposed to believe or anything that it was supposed to do. And you see, the point is, for Christianity to become the state religion, then what happens is you've got an authority over the local church. And when you've got an authority over the local church, let me tell you something, you've got some major problems because the head of the church is Jesus Christ. And listen, let me, let me tell you, the only government that will ever carry out his agenda, it ain't going to be the Republicans. And it ain't going to be the Democrats. And it ain't going to be the Independents. It will be the one that he himself will set up when he comes at his second coming. And Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 says that the government shall be upon his shoulder. And let me tell you something about that government. That won't be a government of the people for the people and by the people. It'll be a government of the Lord Jesus Christ for the Lord Jesus Christ and will be ruled over by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you, I'm real thankful to have been born in America. I appreciate all the freedoms that we have to to meet here today without being thrown in jail. Not that it would change anything that's being said, by by the way, but I am thankful for those freedoms. And all of you folks who fought, men, women, all of you who fought to prolong those freedoms or to allow us to have those, man, I'm telling you, my hat is off to you. And I appreciate it. But I'm not clueless enough to think that this is a Christian nation, nor do I want it to become one. You see, the fallacy of a state religion is that if if you if this is a Christian nation and I'm born as a citizen in this nation, then I must be a Christian. But you see, that's certainly not what makes someone a Christian biblically. And you see, that may work for all of the other religions of the world, but Christianity is different. Because it's not adopting a belief system that makes you a Christian. It's not adhering to the teachings of our leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, that makes a person a Christian. 
Again, that may work in all the other religions of the world, but a person becomes a Christian by receiving a supernatural spiritual birth. And that comes the moment you confess your absolute sinfulness before the one true almighty God and you confess your absolute ability to remove your sin or to do anything about it in an abject poverty of spirit, you cry out for the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse you from your sin. And listen, the moment you call upon His name, you immediately, instantaneously, He causes your dead spirit inside of you that died because of your sin. He causes it to come to life because He takes His life by His Spirit and He moves inside of you. And you see, that's what the Bible teaches. It's what this church teaches. And it's what all of these groups have taught and believed and gave their lives to defend all through the centuries. Number four, none of these groups would ever pray to any dead person, nor would they pray for any dead person. In other words, they rejected prayers to the saints and prayers to Mary. They rejected the concept of purgatory. And you see, folks, that's a big deal because those are the two doctrines that the Roman Catholic Church uses to control the lives of the people. Because you see, without them, you can't talk to Jesus for yourself. And you can't get to Jesus. So you see, when Bible believers would come along down through the centuries and say, No! That is not right! You have direct access to God as a believer in Jesus Christ. And purgatory, it's just a fictitious superstition. And you don't need the Catholic Church. When they proclaimed that, that, you were, that was worthy of death for you to make a statement like that. I, I make the same statement today. What, what, do you make that statement? Number five, they all rejected the Roman Catholic Mass, which is the black magic power of the priests where in the midst of the service, he literally, in Latin, says, hocus pocus. The bell rings, the substance of bread and wine in the communion is supposedly transformed into the literal body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's called transubstantiation because the substance is supposedly transformed. Transubstantiation. Along with calling it blasphemy, Bible believers have always referred to as it nothing more than cannibalism. And that's where it has its origins, all the way back at the Tower of Babel. And, and let me tell you, every one of those groups that we mentioned this morning, every one of those groups believed those five basic tenets, five basic tenets that I would die for today. And let me take a couple of minutes here to tell you in verse 4 what it cost that few in the Sardis period not to defile their garments. And let me tell you something. Maybe the reason there were so few is because it cost something to make that kind of stand back then. And maybe the reason... Maybe the reason there's so many people in this room here today is because it doesn't cost, it, it, we can say amen to this and we're going to walk out and nothing's going to happen. Let me tell you, it wasn't that way back in those days. You made those statements, you became Sardis. You became a red one. And, and once you get a little glimpse of what was going on here, you're going to understand why Jesus says in that verse, verse 4, you're going to understand why it says they're worthy. Listen, those people were persecuted for their faith and for this Bible out of Antioch like you wouldn't believe. Let me tell you something. If you didn't believe in baptizing babies 
you were a heretic. That's all it took. You were a heretic and you were killed. If you didn't accept the Pope as infallible, as the vicar of Christ on the earth over the church, you were a heretic for believing that and you were killed. Well, I'm a heretic. I'll just tell you. Christians were killed because they rejected Rome's Bible and they believed one out of Antioch. And I, I want you to know something. We take a lot of guff in, in this church from the Christianity in our day because we use the King James Version of the Bible. People come in here and they want to snicker about the, the version that we use and why don't you little kids grow up and all that kind of malarkey. Did you know, folks? Listen, some of you are new to this church. You don't know this. Did you know that the only version, the only version, did you hear me? The only version on the market that you can trace back to the church at Antioch where they were first called Christians is the King James Version of the Bible. Did you realize that every single other version, every single other version, every single other version on the market you can trace back through the Roman Catholic Church, through Rome, right back to Alexandria, Egypt, a cursed place for the name of God. Every single one. And listen, the issue is not modern English. I know that's what I know that's what they told you when they sold you the Bible. Well, this one just makes it a whole lot clearer than you know the King James because it's got archaic words. Listen, that is a marketing tool used by the enemy. Listen, the issue on this version issue is the manuscripts from which it was translated from. The Bible that I hold in my hand is a tr Bible. The manuscripts come out of Antioch of Syria. Every other Bible was translated manuscripts that came right through the Roman Catholic Church. When you see footnotes in your Bible that say the, the best and the oldest manuscripts, know this. They're talking about Roman Catholic manuscripts. Well, they didn't tell me that. I'm telling you that now, though. And let me, let me tell you something. Our Bible-believing brothers and sisters back in that period of time, they understood what the issue was. And for holding on to this book out of Antioch, they were burned, they were mutilated, they were tortured. Folks, listen, this is a book that was purchased by the blood of 50 million martyrs. And if you think that I'd cash this book in or I'd lead this church into cashing this book in for some of the godless trash that is on the market today that came through the Roman Catholic Church, I'm telling you, I'd die first. And, and you know what? We may have a big heat and call someday around here to get another version. Let me tell you, you'll, you'll find four pastors that you're going to need to replace just real quick. Because you know what? You can't understand what took place historically, what it is that brought this book into your hand and then cash it in for some piece of trash out there. Bible-believing Christians were thrown for believing that book right there. Were thrown on red-hot grills. Just like you put a piece of chicken on your barbecue grill. Bible-believing people were thrown on that grill while a priest stood by, listening to them scream, waiting for them to just recant 
for what they believed about this book and for what they believed about Jesus Christ and that we receive Jesus Christ by faith in Him alone and not because of any stupid church. And a priest is standing there watching him fry on the grill just waiting for him to recant. People who believe the very same thing that you and I believe this morning, they would be hung upside down in dungeons with bags of starving rats wrapped around their heads And those starving rats would literally eat their noses and their lips and their ears off while a priest would stand right there waiting for them to recant to convert them to Roman Catholicism. They would take our brothers and sisters and I'm telling you, if you you can just put yourself in here, oh yeah, we're saying amen about these five things. Let me tell you something. It's a whole different deal when you're going through that kind of stuff and when you just watched your husband go through something like that. They would fill their mouths, in some accounts, fill their mouths full of gunpowder. And they would take long sticks with a torch on the end of it. And they'd come tantalizing, asking them if they were going to recant for holding that book that we hold in our hands this morning, for believing what they believed about Jesus Christ. And when they would shake their heads no, they'd bring that torch just a little bit closer. And they would ask them, are you going to repent? Are you going to recant of what you believe about that book and what you believe about Jesus Christ? And when they'd shake their head no, they'd bring it a little closer and they would continue the process until finally they literally blew their heads off simply for believing what you and I believe about that book this morning. Others would be tied in prison cells and they wouldn't just come and and chop their hands off. That, That would be far too nice. They would come through every hour of the night and cut off their fingers one inch at a time. One inch at a time while a priest would come every time standing there waiting for them to repent and recant about what they believed about that book and what they believed about faith in Jesus Christ. Finally, it came to the point to where whole armies were being raised against Bible-believing Christians. And you know, we, we sit here this morning, we get all freaked out about Hitler and all of the, you know, the, the six million Jews that he wiped out, and we well should. But listen, I want you to know something. By the hundreds, by the thousands, by the tens of thousands, and hundreds of thousands by the millions, God's people from 500 A.D. to some places in Spain, y'all, the Inquisition didn't end until the 1800s. Do you realize that this church began in the 1800s? I mean, this has been going on for over a thousand years Conservative estimates say that 50 million Bible-believing Christians were killed by the Roman Catholic Church for their faith in Jesus Christ. In Spain, on October 23, 1641, 150,000 in one day, 150,000 of our Bible-believing brothers and sisters were murdered by the Roman Catholic Church and medals were handed out to the people who did that dastardly deed on them by the Pope for killing these unarmed people who believe nothing different than what we believe this morning. Kings and queens were granted special privileges and special favors by the Pope for raising armies against this this holy war against Bible believers. Kings and queens would be awarded medals of honor and plaques honoring their faithfulness to kill those men and women who believed this book out of Antioch and wouldn't let it out of their grasp and they believed that faith was in Christ alone. Go back and read about the Roman Catholic Church impaling 
women on stakes and leaving them to die. They would put them on racks and they would stretch their bodies until their limbs and every joint in their body was just totally out of socket. And while all the while, while it's taking place, here is the priest just waiting for this person to recant and receive the doctrines of Rome. They'd tie them down. They would take white hot irons and put them in their eyes, in their mouth, in their ears, and in their private parts. Moms and dads are about to be killed, but before they are, they're they're strapped down. They're ready to kill them, but before they do, the nun comes by with their little, little boys and girls. And they're laughing their heads off as they are walking them to the monastery because they know how it's going to freak that mom and dad out to know that as a Bible believer, their kids are going to be raised Roman Catholic. And they laugh all the way to the monastery. Moms and dads are tied up. They ask them to deny that book. They take their kids and one at a time. You read accounts. They would take their kids and they would bring them there and watch as they would throw their kids one at a time to, to herds of starving pigs. And here are the kids just being absolutely thrown around like a little toy out, out there in the middle of this thing. Can you imagine that, moms and dads? Here's your kid. And the only reason that they're out there is because of what you believe about that book. And here's little kids screaming to the top of their lungs. They don't even understand what's happening. Mommy! Daddy! Mommy! Daddy! Can you imagine? And all they got to do, all they got to do is just tell the priest, I recant. I accept the doctrines of Rome. That's all they got to do and all this will stop. Pregnant women strapped down. They cut the baby out of their stomach and hold it over their the woman's head and kill it if she wouldn't recant for her faith in Jesus Christ. And someone might say, well, you know what, pal? I, I think you've got a problem with the Catholic Church. And you know what? I'm not sure all of this happened. And you know, I always have heard that the Baptists and the Catholics didn't quite get along. And, and you know what? That may be a great way of explaining all of this if it weren't for the fact that this is stuff that is substantiated by Catholic authors and historians themselves. And, and people want to know why we get all freaked out when, when, when the president of the largest so-called Christian network in the world parades Catholic priests on their station and charismatics all over the world are embracing Roman Catholics. You know why? Not because of the doctrines they hold. It's because they've had the same experience There's all kinds of professing Christians who are joining hands with Roman Catholics right now and, and all in the name of unity in the body of Christ. And everyone's saying right now in, in all over Christianity, well, we've got to put away our differences and, and just be unified in the fact that we all name the name of Christ. That is a bunch of hogwash, man! Those were the differences that cost our brothers and sisters their lives! You mean to tell me we're going to all of a sudden just start sweeping this stuff under the rug like this doesn't mean anything? 
And listen, I want you to know something. I, I know you don't like the intensity that comes with all of this. I know some of you can't wait for me to shut up so you can get out of here. But I want you to know something this morning. Because our brothers and sisters were willing to do what they did. We're sitting here this morning in our plush pews with the temperature just right, holding this book in our hands with the faith of Jesus Christ in our hearts because there were some differences worth dying for. And you know what? There's still some differences worth dying for. There's still some differences that will make us as a church will never align with that harlot system. Never. 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 Sound like you hate Catholics. Listen, that is not true. I'm not talking about people here, folks. I'm talking about a system of religion. And yes, I hate the system of their religion. But I want you to know, I would do whatever I could possibly do for any Roman Catholic, whether it be a priest, a nun, or the Pope himself. Man, I'm telling you, I would love the opportunity to open this book and show them how they could receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But folks, listen, we're talking about a system of religion that has damned millions and millions and millions of people all down through the centuries to hell there are a billion people on this planet this morning who embrace that satanic system. And I, I said this to you last week. We, we are learning these things. And, and God is allowing us to be able to, to see what this, this, the book of Revelation is, is revealing to us. And, and what this has got to do to us, folks, is we've got to get to the point to where we love these people out of the clutches of that system that is binding them and that is blinding them. That's the call. We're not, hey, we, we don't want to go and get revenge. We don't want to go slap somebody. We don't want to get in anybody's face. No, we want to love them out of that system because people are blinded by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, which is the image of God, should shine unto them. They're blinded, y'all. They don't know this stuff. They don't know. And, and listen, I, I know I, I know that somebody's going to come to me after the service, or somebody's going to get a hold of this tape somewhere down the road, and they're going to say, Yeah, well, you know, there were some, some, you know, there were some bad popes in those days, but... But they weren't all evil men like some of those that you were, you were talking about. And, and, and let me tell you, you're right. But let me tell you something. Every, every single one of them aided, endorsed, and abetted the Roman Catholic Inquisition, which for 1,000 years tortured, mutilated, murdered, and robbed 50 million Bible-believing Christians because they dared to lift their voice against the Roman Catholic Church and some of those popes and some of those church leaders that the Catholics hold up as their great forefathers are men who lived and thrived during those bloody days. And let me tell you something. There wasn't a one of them. There wasn't a one of them that ever made a serious effort to lower those, those dripping blades, open the doors of countless dungeons, or put out the fires that blackened the skies of Europe for over 1,000 years. And listen, all any one of them would have had to do to stop it would it be to put his name and his seal on a stinking piece of paper and it would have all been over. So listen, please don't come to me and try to hold up some guy as some great thing when all he had to do to stop that malarkey was just put his name somewhere. I, I, I'm telling you, I don't call that good. And then the next thing that he says in verse 5, 
He gives the challenge to him that over he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And there's those Bible believers. And I'll not blot out his name of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. You say, well, who are these overcomers? Listen, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. It says, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And you know what? That's what was characteristic of every one of those Bible believers. Those are the overcomers. People want to use this verse and say, you see, you can lose your salvation. That's not, it doesn't say anything about that. Overcomers, those who believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, you know what? They'll walk with him in white, and they won't defile their garments. Verse 6, he that hath an ear, the call, here it is, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I know my voice was pretty loud in this room this morning. And, and, and I, I'm just telling you, I don't know how you talk about what has happened. And you're not intense about it. And you see what's happening on the planet and the fact that the whole world is about to embrace this system. And you mean to tell me, here we are sitting in the last days and we don't get intense about this? You mean, you mean to tell me that it, doesn't, it doesn't hyper you out? Then, then I'm just telling you, you don't understand. Do you hear what the Spirit of God has been saying, though, over my loud voice? Some of you here, you've been caught in that system. And I know the things you've heard today have been strong. But do you hear what the Spirit of God is saying? He's calling you to embrace Christ alone. Not, not through this church. Not through any church. You come to Christ alone because He alone saved you. And you can't add anything to what He finished on the cross. And you say, when you come to that, it's, it's that simple. And if you add anything to what he finished, and it wasn't finished, and if you add anything to it, you water it down and so that it's not, it doesn't have the power to save you. You come to Jesus Christ and him alone. Is the Spirit of God saying that to you today? And what's the Spirit of God saying to this church? We're holding this book in our hands. And what's sad is though it cost our brothers and sisters their lives, 50 million of them, for you to own probably six copies in your family. And some of you didn't crack it all week. Go figure. You know, what that, you know what that does to, to those people that handed you that book? It's just a slap in their face. It's just a spit right in their face. It really doesn't matter. Don't read it for their sake. <laughs> read it for Christ's sake. God thought it. Jesus bought it. The Holy Spirit brought it. The devil fought it. And now we've got it. What will we do with it?
light of the price that has been paid for us to hold it in our hands this morning. Will you read it? Will you study it? Will you do everything that you can possibly do to get the message of this book to the people on this planet who desperately need to hear what Jesus Christ and Christ alone can do for them? Let's stand with our heads bowed.